I like the way he waves at his kid as he goes floating by. I'm like, see ya. <laughs> like that commercial quite a bit. So glad you guys are all here today. Join me, if you would, in your Bibles, the book of Galatians. You know, as a church, we've been walking through this book together, trying to get an understanding of grace. Today, we're going to be in Galatians, starting in chapter 2. We're going to cover the first 10 verses of that chapter. But I want to start out by trying to explain why that commercial was stuck in my head this week. And it's because of that tagline that they used. I think it's the big picture of what Ford is trying to package here together. It's that idea that and is better. You know, why would you want only one thing when you could have two things? Especially if they're things that would go together, like nuts and bolts. In that example, you don't want an either or because then your pool explodes. That turns out really bad for you. I'll be the first to admit there are some scenarios where and does sound better. I remember actually, this is years ago, I was going to a conference with Pastor Danny Green And we went to have lunch, and there was a steak and shake right across the site from this church where we were. And and so we went over there and ordered some burgers. And and the waitress is there, and she asked Dan, do you want fries or onion rings with that? And he said, yes. And she she was pretty sure she was asking an either-or question, but he really wanted a both-and in that case. So sometimes and is better, maybe not for your health. In the commercial, that's what we see. They say, hey, great handling and good gas mileage. Don't we want both of those? Yeah, and is better there. But in our study in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul makes the case, and is not always better. In all of chapter 1, Paul's been explaining there's only one true gospel message. So if we take that and try and tweak it or change it or add something to it or take something away from it, then it would cease to be the gospel. And if it ceases to be the gospel, then it doesn't offer the path of salvation. It doesn't offer the promise of reconciliation with God that he desires for all people. So Paul's teaching, hey, the gospel is not a both and. The gospel is truly an either-or. Either you accept the one true authentic gospel, or you do not. Now here's the deal with the gospel message for us. It is so deep. It is so unfathomably wonderful. We could preach about it forever. We could talk about it all day long. We could study it at length as long as we hang around on this planet, and we'll never reach the bottom. We'll truly never plumb the depths. But here's the other thing. It's paradoxical. The gospel is so simple that even little children can understand it. Matter of fact, I'd make the case that they sometimes grasp it better. They have childlike faith, and they don't have a lot of learning and experience that gets in their way. Here's the simple gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a story we find in the Bible. The Bible states that God created all people in his image, and he created them for his glory. And then God allowed sin to enter into this world he created. And since that happened, every one of us, every person is a sinful, fallen person. And Scripture says the wages for that sin is death. And if we stop the story right there, that's a pretty sad story. We know it doesn't stop there. The Bible explains, but then Jesus. But then God in His great love showed us mercy and compassion, and He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live on this earth as a sinless person. His whole purpose to reveal God to us. And then we understand, we keep reading the story, Jesus died. He voluntarily went to the cross to pay the penalty those wages of sin for you, for me, for all people. And he offered us a trade. He says, Jesus will take our junk and we can have his righteousness. That's the trade that's on the table. But we have to accept the terms of the agreement. We accept him, we're saved. We have a relationship with God that's by grace through faith in Jesus. But the terms of the agreement are, it's only available by grace. We can't try to earn it. can't try to deserve it. We accept that it's a forever relationship. We know this because God announced when he sent his son Jesus that he was going to go to the cross. Before that, death was always seen as the end for people. 
according to God's plan, after three days, Jesus rose again. He conquered sin and death. He ascended into heaven. He established this kingdom that will have no end. And so now we've got to respond. Now we have this choice to make. And believe me, it's an either-or choice. We either respond by grace through faith, we accept Jesus, and we live lives of abundance, or we don't. And then we're going to face the consequences of being eternally separated from God. So that's the choice we get to make, and God knows the choice we're going to make, but in it we can't earn salvation in any way. We can't be good enough or smart enough or anything enough that we would deserve it. That's what Paul is teaching. And he's just absolutely clear on it. It's not a fries and onion rings thing. It's not a nuts and bolts thing. It's not both and. It's not, well, we'll follow Jesus and live a good life and you'll be okay. You can't do that. It's not accept the grace and then try and earn the grace. Because it just doesn't work that way. I'm sorry, Ford, but and is not always better. The context of the book of Galatians, Paul's dealing with the fact that this group of Judaizers had come in after he'd shared the, the true gospel, the authentic gospel, and they'd come in and said, no, it's a both and. Sure, Jesus is great, but you have to do the Mosaic Law stuff. And you've got to obey the dietary restrictions. And the feasts and festivals are really good. So you've got to do all that. The gospel's really a both and. That wasn't just a first century problem. We still see this today. There are denominations where they'll say, yeah, yeah, it's faith in Jesus for sure, but you have to be baptized. Yeah, it's, it's totally belief in Jesus, I get it, but you have to speak in tongues. And if we follow any of those, then we're not following a true gospel message because they're really saying Jesus isn't enough for salvation. We receive grace that we don't deserve or we don't. That's the way it works. That's what Paul wants his audience to understand. And the reason is because he loves these people so much and he loves the true gospel so much that he's not willing to play around with it. We're calling this series Understanding Grace because that's what we're supposed to do. It's what Paul taught then. Now, 2,000 years later, it's us. He wants us to understand grace. So we looked at chapter 1, and it focused almost exclusively on the source of the gospel message. Paul keeps saying he got it in a revelation from Jesus. Now, here in chapter 2, he starts to make some subtle switches. They're not big, but he's going to start focusing more on the content of the gospel message because eventually he's working towards the application of the gospel in our lives. And also in chapter 1, he focused a lot on his independence from the other apostles because he didn't become an eyewitness in the same way they did. Well, now he's saying, hey, I didn't get the gospel from them, but notice how we're preaching the same gospel? So he's talking more about unity here. So we'll jump in, and we'll start in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. This is right after Paul shared. He's out doing this ministry, and people were hearing about the incredible life change he'd experienced. Hey, weren't you the guy that used to persecute Christ followers, and now you're preaching faith? That's a big deal. And Paul's going to introduce a new person to us. He starts out mentioning Barnabas. We already know him. Barnabas was on Paul's first missionary journey. They hung out. But Paul introduces a new guy, and his name is Titus. And Titus has a very specific purpose in this passage, and it may not sound so good at the start. Titus is a guinea pig. Titus is going to be the test case for whether or not new believers in Christ have to become Jewish. And here's how Paul starts. It says, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I took Titus along also. Now, it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them. He's saying the leaders in Jerusalem. I submitted to them the gospel, which I've been preaching among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or I had run in vain. What does that mean? 
I said a few weeks ago, there are folks who believe that this letter was actually written a little later than the date that I suggested, after the Jerusalem Council, maybe 53 to 56 A.D. And so those people will say this passage in Galatians corresponds to Acts chapter 15 and what we see going on in the Jerusalem Council. I don't believe that's the case because I feel if this passage was talking about the decision of that council, then there really wouldn't be any point in writing it. Because at the Jerusalem Council, all the church leaders got together and decided you don't have to be Jewish to be a Christ follower. That's why the Jerusalem Council met, was to settle this both-and debate. And the decision they came up with was, you can't both accept grace and keep the law. So if that had already been determined, I'm sure Paul would have just cited precedence when this came up again. My understanding is this passage in Galatians 2 was before that Jerusalem Council. It correlates with the visit that Paul made to Jerusalem that we see in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. And if that's the passage, it says Paul made this journey in response to a revelation from God. God told him to go. Now that's important to stop and mention because it lets us know Paul wasn't in trouble. Paul didn't get summoned to Jerusalem. You ever get that call when you're in school? The Apostle Paul, please report to Jerusalem after third hour. You know, you know you're in trouble if that comes. But that, that wasn't the deal. He goes because Jesus told him to go, and he meets with these leaders privately, which is another big indicator to me that this is not talking about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Jerusalem Council was a really big deal. The whole church was there. When you read that chapter, Paul and Barnabas show up. They're greeted by the church, the other apostles, the elders were there, the believing Pharisees were there. There was nothing private about that meeting. Here in verse 2, Paul comes and he says he meets with these guys of reputation privately. And what are they talking about? It's this gospel of grace. They're talking about the message that Paul's been out preaching for 14 years. And that teaching had been bearing a lot of fruit. I'm encouraging you to go and read through the book of Acts as we do this. If you will do, you'll see thousands, literally, of men and women responding to the message of salvation, responding in faith to this message that Paul's preaching. And so let me be really clear on this. Paul's not showing up to check in with these respected leaders and see if they thought he was doing it right. He's not asking them, hey, do you like my style? What what do you think of my delivery? He's not even asking about the accuracy of the message. But Paul says he indicates that in the past, or maybe even now, he's been laboring in vain. So what does that mean? And I think it's a little tricky to dissect. So I'm going to share with you what I feel Paul is saying here, but I'm also going to share... I found a couple commentaries this week, and I listened to a couple sermons from guys that I really respect who have a different take than I do on how to interpret this phrase. There are some Bible scholars, there are some pastors who feel that what Paul is doing here is he's being really humble. And he's coming to these reputable guys and saying, hey, maybe I haven't been doing this right. Maybe I didn't hear it right when I got it from Jesus, and so maybe I've been sharing the gospel wrong. Maybe I've been tweaking it a little bit, or or maybe I've been adding something to it. So you guys, you reputable guys, check me on it and let me know what you think. Now, I don't like disagreeing with all these wise people, but I just can't go there. Because what has Paul been doing? What has he been hammering on over and over again? It's there's only one true gospel. It's not a both-and gospel. It doesn't give you the freedom to sin. It gives you the liberty not to sin. You can't earn it. You can't be Jewish enough to deserve it. Paul's been preaching Christ crucified. He's been preaching what the cross accomplished. He's been preaching grace, 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 set free by mercy and love. Paul knows the gospel. There's no question on that. So I can't buy that he's showing up saying, maybe I've been messing this up. (laughs) Maybe somehow I've had it wrong. Now, I do like the idea of Paul showing some humility here, but I just don't see it in that passage. Here's what I do see, and I'll tell you on this. You study this on your own. 
and see where God has you land. But here's what he's showing me. I think Paul's saying, hey, here's the deal. I've been preaching this gospel for all these years. And now here I am. God sent me to meet with you respected leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And if you guys tell me from here on out we have to insist on circumcision and other requirements of the law for any new Gentile believers, then Paul says, I will have been laboring in vain. He's saying, if you church leaders want me to make following Jesus a both and, then my ministry is going to take a severe hit. It's going to be really damaged. It's going to be really hindered because now I'm going to have to go back to all those thousands of folks who professed faith in Christ by grace through faith and say, whoops, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> Sorry, the church leaders in Jerusalem say you do have to get circumcised. Looks like the Judaizers were right all along. I'm so sorry. See, if that's what these reputable leaders were going to say to Paul, then he's saying those years of fruitful labor would have been in vain. But that's not what they said. Now, in verses 3 and 4, he introduces Titus. And here we see Paul's, what I think is a genius plan, play out. He's going to have Titus be his test case. We'll see why he brought him along to this meeting with the leaders. Starting in verse 3, Paul writes, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Jesus Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. So we have to ask some observation questions there. It says Paul brings Barnabas and Titus to this private meeting. Who are they? And why does he do it? Why did they come? Well, Barnabas is a no-brainer. Barnabas is Paul's partner in ministry. Barnabas is a neat guy to study, very honestly. His name means encourager, and he actually has that spiritual gift. And while Paul is the one who gets all the press as being the apostle who was sent to the Gentiles and to the non-Jewish people, Barnabas actually did it first. If you read through the book of Acts this week, look at chapter 11. That's where we see Barnabas actually being sent out to Antioch to witness to the Gentiles. And he goes and he does that, and there's a huge mission field. There's a great need when he gets there. So Barnabas is the one who actually goes to get Paul, and he brings him back with him to minister with him. They do this amazing ministry. I've referenced this verse before in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, where it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. It's because they reveal, they, God revealed Christ to them there through Barnabas and Paul. Those are the guys who were doing the ministry. So Barnabas is there. He and Paul are working together. In fact, at this private meeting, they're actually bringing a collection. They're bringing financial relief to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So we get Barnabas. But now why Titus? Why is he long for the ride? Well, later we're going to become more familiar with Titus. He becomes like an associate pastor with Paul. Like Barnabas is with him on this first missionary journey. Titus is the guy who's with him on the second and third missionary journeys. And Titus actually ends up being the pastor of the church in Crete when Paul writes in the letter that we see in the Bible with his name attached to it. Just a little hint there. If you have a book in the Bible named after you, you're a pretty big deal. But at this point in time here in Galatians, Titus is, seriously, he's just a guinea pig. He's the test case because Titus is a Greek guy. He's a full-on, bacon-loving, pork-sandwich-eating Greek guy who responded to the gospel in faith. And now he's become a Christ follower, and Titus didn't become Jewish. He was a Gentile Christ follower. And so Paul brings him along on purpose to say, see, he's not a both-and. He didn't become Jewish. Gospel of Grace says Titus doesn't need to be circumcised to be saved. So Paul trots him out in front of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and says, are you guys going to tell me that Titus has to be circumcised? Now Paul knows the correct answer because he knows the gospel. He's been preaching this. There's no difference in those who receive the gift of grace. He's going to really nail that towards the end of chapter 3. That's coming. 
But he's been teaching God offers grace to Jews and Gentiles in the same way. It's an either or. You don't put your faith in Jesus and then have to do stuff in addition to it. Because if you don't put your faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do in addition to it. He's saying the gift of grace is available to those who respond by putting their faith in Jesus alone. And Paul says, since that's how God accepts people, shouldn't the church do it in the same way? And sure enough, here in verse 3, Paul gets that affirmation from Titus. He confirms he hasn't been laboring in vain because these reputable guys don't tell Titus to get circumcised. You move on to verse 4, and we see this is a big win for Paul. We understand that, but it wasn't an easy win because he's dealing with all this false teaching. These Judaizers would come around and spread the both-and message. Paul calls them here false brethren. Kind of mean, but I mean, he's saying they're not brothers. They're not Christ followers. We'll run into people who are false teachers. Sometimes, real honestly, they're going to be easy to spot. Sometimes they won't be. They'll be real subtle and they'll be crafty. But I think these false teachers were pretty easy to pick out of a crowd, honestly. A couple years after this later to Galatians, these guys are still around. They don't give up. They're still preaching this both and message. And they come right out in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1 and declare what they believe, which I guarantee is the same false teaching they'd been sharing back in Galatians 1 and verse 6, which Paul called a different gospel. It's not really the gospel. And here's how they tell on themselves in Acts 15.1. I think this is the statement that ultimately paved the way for the Jerusalem council meeting. Luke writes, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, the brethren, Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's pretty clear-cut, isn't it? That's what they're teaching. That's as both and as you can get. Sorry you can't be saved without the and. And is better. You have to believe in Jesus and be circumcised. Now, the best way for us to think of these guys, these false teachers, these Judaizers, is that they're spies. This is like 007, you know, espionage, secret agent stuff. These folks come into the group, and they pretend that they're with you. Oh, we're all on the same page. We're good. But what they really want to do is sneak in and see where you're vulnerable. They want to figure out the areas where they can attack your message. There's a great clue on this from the Greek word that Paul uses for sneaked in there. It's the Greek word pares elphon. It means infiltrated. They infiltrated. They snuck in with this enemy mission, and they clearly have two goals in mind. And Paul lists both of them here in verse 4. The first is they want to spy out what Christian freedom looks like. These are both and people for sure. And so they want to come and observe, well, what on earth would it look like to be an either or? What are the ramifications of being a Christ follower and not obeying the cultural stuff? Now, they don't want to spy it out so they can do it. They want to spy it out so they can figure out how to attack it. And the next point is they want to attack because their main goal is to return Christ followers to slavery. That's what they want to do. These Judaizers want to bring the people back into the bondage of having to obey the laws and the rules and the ceremonies. So Paul knows what these folks have been up to. This is why he's writing this letter, to deal with the fallout from this different gospel. And so he indicates in verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with us. Now we know that's true, right? If somebody's telling something and it's just blatantly untrue, it's entirely false, we don't even give them the time of day. There's not a whole lot to be gained from even addressing it. And that's what Paul says. We don't even play around here. We don't even joke about it. We just stand firm on the gospel. I thought about this in my life. And this summer, I'll have been married 18 years. But I'm a product of divorce. My folks got divorced when I was real young. 
And then my dad and my mom kind of had a contest to see who could get remarried and divorced the most times. My dad won, but it's clearly on a technicality. He did marry one lady twice. And my mom did die 25 years ago. She can't compete anymore. But, so my dad's still the winner. My dad got married four times, and my mom got married three times, and that really impacted me. The, the consequences of divorce impact us. And so it, it made me, when I got married later in my life, set some ground rules for my wife and I. We don't even talk about divorce. We're having a disagreement. We can't even mention the word because it's not an option. That's what Paul's saying here. That, that thing is so far out there, we don't even address it. We don't even talk about it. Paul doesn't ever negotiate with the gospel. He never put together a meeting with the Judaizers and said, I think we can make a deal here. Here's the deal. What if the Gentile guys give up bacon, but you don't make them get circumcised? How would that work for you? It's that circumcision. That's a painful deal. What do you think? I don't think they even get it. They don't understand it's a picture of a circumcised heart. So how about we just don't make them do that? No. Paul never has a meeting like that. And we know the reason. It's because he loves the gospel too much. He's not going to go there. Not even for an hour. He loves these people too much. So he's not going there with the false teachers, these spies in the ranks of the true believers. Those first five verses, that's the test case of Titus. It's just a confirmation for us of the fact that a true understanding of grace reveals it's an either or. It's not a both and. Now in the remaining verses today, we're going to see that Paul receives approval now from these leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He calls them the pillars of the church. Look at verse 6, and Paul returns to the story of the private conversation he's having with these reputable people. He writes, but from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality, he says. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. Now, I think what Paul is trying to say is that these leaders of high reputation didn't correct him in any way. They didn't say, no, you're preaching it wrong this way. Try this approach. They're just affirming the accuracy of the gospel message that he's been sharing, which is good. But when you hear that, and you hear the way Paul says it, you know, maybe it's just me, but but it almost sounds like he's taking a shot at these guys. (laughs) Sounds kind of mean. What they were makes no difference to me, he says. A couple of times in verse 2 and here in verse 6, Paul says, well, people talk good about those guys. In verse 9, he names Peter and James and John, but he kind of backhands them a little bit. He says they're reputed to be pillars. Can you imagine how that conversation would play out? Paul was there talking to Peter and James and John. He says, wow, I hear you guys are kind of a big deal. No offense, that means nothing to me. (laughs) It's hard to have a conversation like that, isn't it? Anytime you have a conversation and you'd have to say the words no offense, no offense intended, well, then you're acknowledging you probably offended somebody in that conversation. I have a good friend who has a young son, and my friend's son offended somebody the other day. And you can almost get away with it when they're young kids because they'll say anything. But my buddy works in the tire business, and this young boy's grown up around it. And so they've always got big trucks and service vehicles and all these things driving around. And you know, if you've got a big truck or service vehicle, when it backs up, it makes that beeping sound. Beep, beep, beep. This little boy grew up in that environment. He knows that's when you've got to get out of the way. My buddy and his boy were in line at a fast food restaurant here in town, and they were behind this guy who was a really sizable guy. He's <laughs> a really big fella. Those of us in the glass houses don't like to throw stones, but my buddy said he was big. He was a real big fella. And he had his phone stuck on his belt, and I guess he downloaded like a ringtone or something that, that made that beeping noise. <laughs> and so they're standing there, and this guy's phone goes off, beep, beep, beep. And the three-year-old boy looks at the people behind him and says, get out of the way, he's backing up. 
Now, my buddy said no offense to the guy, but at that point in time, it might have been a little too late. I think he was probably already offended. Feels to me like that's what Paul should say here. And hey, no offense intended to the big three, because he sounds a little snarky. And what he's really trying to do is establish that there's unity here. He's trying to say, hey, I'm on the same page with you reputable guys. We're all preaching the same gospel message. And I think there may be a couple explanations for Paul's tone here. And the first one's not as strong to me, but I've advanced this theory before. A lot of times Paul's writing, and it's in response to the things that people are saying. So maybe these Judaizers were just bound and determined to make Paul look bad. One of the classic ways to do that is by comparison. We see this happen all the time, sadly. You find a girl, and she's a good student, you know, and you say, oh, yeah, she's smart, but she's not as smart as Becky. Oh, Becky's brilliant, you know. And what you've done, really, is, is knock this girl down a couple notches. See this with athletes all the time. Oh, he's a good basketball player. He's no LeBron, you know. Well, who is? You know, and what it is, it becomes a slight by comparison. And so maybe the Judaizers are saying, oh, Paul, sure, he's a nice guy. He's no Peter. You know, Peter, he's going to the Jews. He, he's our guy. So that's one option. It could be that. Comparison is just the thief of joy. But it makes more sense to me to simply propose that Paul's blunt and he has his priorities in order. He's not trying to disrespect any of the apostles. He's saying every one of us, compared to God, we're all puny. Now, I like that explanation better because Paul's trying to lump himself in with these guys. He's not trying to distract from anybody's ministry. He's saying all the glory for the grace we've received, this message that we're preaching, all the glory goes to God, period. So I don't think he's trying to offend these leaders in Jerusalem. But I also don't think he's in awe of them. He's just indicating, hey, every one of us, we're all servants of God. He said, and God shows no partiality. So these reputable leaders, they're no better, they're no worse than Paul. He indicates we're all preaching the same gospel. And then in verses 7 and 9, he says this, But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, and then he explains how divine appointment works. He says, For he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised, he also effectually worked for me, to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, he says, James and Cephas, Peter and John, who again were reputed to be pillars, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we may go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And all that is, the leaders in Jerusalem recognize that Paul's been telling the truth. (laughs) He's been sharing the accurate gospel and he's been divinely appointed. And his target audience, both he and Barnabas, is going to be to go and reach the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. That's the group he's trying to reach. And we see here Peter is going to be Christ's spokesperson to the Jews, to the circumcised. Now, it's important for us in application to stop and notice there's differentiation there between the two groups of people. But Paul and Peter are not preaching two different gospels. It's not one version of the truth you preach to Greeks, but then another version you have to preach to the Jews. There's not one gospel of grace you give to women and then another you have to give to men there's not one gospel message you give to a certain ethnic group but then you have to give another people who aren't in that ethnic group it doesn't work that way paul's so clear on this throughout scripture there's one gospel one gospel that explains salvation it's the one authentic gospel paul is always preaching he says i'm going to go preach it to the gentiles peter's going to preach it to the jews now what we need to grasp in application is When we present it, will we always do it the same way? Or will we present the same truth differently to different people? I think the answer is that's what we need to do. We want to tailor it 
to the audience we're sharing it with. One gospel, one truth, that we can change the methodology. We can change the way we deliver the truth as long as we never change the truth itself. I had the great privilege several months ago now to share the gospel with a girl who worked over here at the Rhodes Convenience Store. I was over there getting my Diet Coke, and she was there, and it was pretty early in the morning, and I'm just going to say she looked rough. And, and, and I have the kind of baggage in my life where I think I knew why she looked rough. But I didn't lead with that. I didn't do this real well, and God bailed me out on it. I didn't lead with that. Instead, I said to her, hey, you look kind of tired. Are you feeling okay? And she said to me, she was just so abundantly true, it was funny. She said, I am so hungover. And I did, at the time, what was probably the worst thing I could have done. I laughed. I laughed out loud, which wasn't cool. So I had to explain to her. I think I literally said, hey, no offense. I said, hey, here's the deal. Maybe you don't know. I'm a pastor at that church over across the street. But before I was a pastor, I used to work in outreach ministry. And when I worked in outreach ministry, people would say to me what you just said. So now I work over in the church. Nobody shows up in my office and says, oh, Pastor James, I am so hungover. It just doesn't happen. I said, so here's the deal. I laughed because your transparency. Your truthfulness just took me off guard. And that, God seemed to bail me out in that. And, and I got to share the gospel with her. Now, here's the deal. Did, did I change the truth in any way? Oh, I pray not. I pray I didn't change it one iota. But did I appeal to her in a way that said, hey, I know the kind of baggage you're carrying. I have that problem with addiction in my life. I know what it looks like to chase after something that offers no real joy, no abundance. I used those things. I tailored the gospel message to the audience that I had. When we're out doing that, when we're out sharing the greatest story ever told, the good news of Jesus Christ, we should know our audience. All we're saying here is Peter's probably going to share it differently with these Jewish people because they've got a lot of religious baggage. They've been trying to earn salvation. But Paul may share it a totally different way with people who are far, far from Christ, and they've got a lot of life experience baggage. They're sharing it a different way, but I guarantee you it's the same gospel, and that's okay. It really is. Ultimately, what we see in these verses is that the apostles approved of Paul. Said they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. That's just a way of saying, we agree with you. We could shake on what you're doing. You're doing this right. Gospel message they've been sharing is the one true gospel. Now it says, you guys go share it with the Gentiles. We're going to go share it to the Jewish people. And so finally, after they've agreed on this one true gospel, they figured out the division of labor, who's going where. Paul closes with this in verse 10. It says, they, the, the pillars, they only asked us to remember the poor. And he says, that's the very thing I also was eager to do. We want them to remember the poor. When we're going back through this in the book of Acts to get the context, I said it's in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. Paul says, I'm eager to do that. And here to me is more correlation of Scripture because it's Paul's concern for the poor that was what motivated him to be paying attention to God telling him to go. God had sent Paul to Jerusalem because of a revelation, and when he did, he sent him and Barnabas with a collection that had been gathered, a financial collection. He was coming out of obedience and to bring this relief because at the time, there was a massive famine in the first century world. What had happened, just to, to paint that picture, there was a bunch of folks, Jewish people, who had flooded into Jerusalem for Pentecost years before when the Holy Spirit came. From that point in time, believers now have the ability to have the indwelling Holy Spirit with us. It's when the church was launched. And so all these people get saved. 
and they received grace and the Holy Spirit, and now they're Christians. And what happened was they got kicked out of their families. They'd come and they'd put their faith in Jesus, but all their families are both and people. And now they've become either or people. So they get kicked out. The way I thought of that this week is one of my favorite stories from Dr. Seuss. If you have kids, you know about the star belly sneeches? Star belly sneeches had bellies with stars, but the plain belly sneeches had none upon ours. Some of the star belly, star belly sneeches had frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toast. They didn't invite the plain belly sneeches. Well, that's what happened to these folks. All of a sudden, these Christ followers now have no stars on their bellies, and so they get cut off from the star belly sneeches. They have to just stay there in Jerusalem. Well, they do that, and you fast forward, and now this famine hits. And so there's all these Christ followers there, these authentic Christians, and they're starving to death. And so these Gentile believers, they're not Jewish guys, they're Gentile believers up in Antioch, they see this. And they say, hey, those Jewish believers down there, they're in trouble, but we're Gentile believers over here in Antioch. What can we do? What does that have to do with us? And, and they take a collection, a financial collection, and the answer is, hey, these people are Christians too. Doesn't matter if their bellies have stars or not. They're Christ followers. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're supposed to love them. So what can we do? And Paul brings this collection that had been gathered for at least a couple reasons. And, and it's the same reasons we give to things financially today. You could probably come up with a lot of good reasons. But for sure, the first one is a financial blessing would practically help these people who were starving to death. There was a famine. It wasn't that there was no food. It's that there was a severe shortage of food. It's a supply and demand thing. So without a doubt, the price of food was ridiculous. So they're bringing in some money and saying, here, don't starve. Take this fund, these funds. And then there's also, I think, a second purpose. And that's more of the star belly sneeches purpose. When we support people who are like us but not like us, when we support other Christians because they're Christians, then that's a great show of unity. When Paul and Barnabas can bring money that's been donated by the Gentile believers and give it to the Jewish believers, then these folks are going to have a much better sense of community and realize, hey, we're all on the same team here. Paul's hoping that helping out during this famine will maybe stem the tide of any disagreements that would come up later between Jews and Gentiles, between brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's it. That's the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. We've said this entire letter, we call the whole series Understanding Grace, because that's what we're supposed to do. We want to try and grasp that the true gospel is not a both and. You don't have to put your faith in Jesus and do all the cultural stuff. And Titus comes along, and he serves as the test case. And the fact that the Jerusalem leaders don't make him get circumcised, that's really important. Because now Paul can say, hey, here's a Gentile believer that was accepted by the Jewish leaders. Here's proof you don't have to be circumcised. And then at the end of that, Paul and Barnabas receive approval for the one true gospel that they're sharing, which is, again, just confirmation. It's not either or. Or pardon me, it is either or. It's not both and. Salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so and is not always better. When it comes to the gospel, it's certainly not better. Let me pray for us. Father God, what a joy to hear the gospel preached. And I know so many of us come to be together because of our love for your word, because of our love for your gospel message, because of our love for people. Help us to understand how we can take that truth, your authentic gospel message, and go share it. Lord, help us to tailor it with the audiences that you give us, the people you put directly in front of us. And help us understand 
how this plays out in our lives. Lord, it's not that the law has no place. We're going to see that over the next several weeks. Paul explained the, the importance of the law as a guide, as a diagnostic to show us where we're wrong. But the problem is it can't save us. Jesus saves us. Help us to understand that and dig in. I thank you for the chance to come together as a church and walk through this book. God, continue to grow us and help us become exactly who you desire for us to be in your son. We love you so much. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.